This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our collective effort to help women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as mine, at Laura Zarrow. So it's Women's History Month, a time when women role models are celebrated and the challenges that women face get real focused attention from people across the country, sometimes even across the globe. While this annual spotlight has been shining on us since 1981, the celebration and advancement of women of color has all too often been overlooked in the process. Fortunately, a new book has just been released that is a potent antidote to that. Written by Deepa Prashathaman, the first, the few, the only, how women of color can redefine power in corporate America is an important new resource for all of us. And I couldn't be more delighted to kick off Women's History Month with Deepa as our guest. So welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me. So excited to be here. Oh, Deepa, I'm excited to get into things. But first, I figure people probably want to know a little bit more about you. So bear with me for a moment. So Deepa spent more than 20 years at Deloitte, where she led their national women's initiative, the firm's renowned program to recruit, retain, and advance women, and became the first Indian American woman to make partner in the company's history. While many would consider that the dream job, Deepa step away and co-founded Enformation, an online platform which provides a safe space for professional women of color to network and talk about the challenges they face every day. Deepa is a women in public policy program leader in practice at the Harvard Kennedy School and an Aspen Fellow. With degrees from Wellesley College, the Harvard Kennedy School, and the London School of Economics, Deepa is a shining example of someone who found her own power within and uses it every day to lift up others. So Deepa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. That was a mouthful, by the way. But yes, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good little tongue twister. Um, When you first started your career, Deepa, and you had Deloitte was ahead of you, that ambition of having that kind of position and role, how did you define success? It's a great question because I feel like early on success for me, even though when I entered and I should say, so you heard the degrees, I wasn't a traditional MBA. And so in my 700 person start class, keep this in mind, I was the only non-MBA of 700 people. So I was always, I, what I call an odd duck and, you know, swim, swimming in that space. I did very well, but I always from the beginning felt a little bit different. So I don't know that initially I had has aspirations of making partner and rising. I think I was just trying to survive because I felt so different from a skill set perspective, but I would say two or three years in, I decided if I'm going to stay here and this is going to be my work, I also thought I was going to do politics, right? So that was really my initial policy and politics was my calling and what I went to school for. But if I was going to stay in corporate and do this, I wanted to rise. I wanted to be a voice. I wanted to get the seat so that I could open it up for more women of color. That was always top of mind to me. So I would say a couple of years in, I decided, you know, if we're going to stay here, if we're going to work the hours, if we're going to do the grind, let's, let's, you know, rise, let's get to the top and let's change it. Once we get there, I, I always had that from the beginning. And so go back a little bit because that policy 
work that you did. You interned at the White House, yes? I did. I did White House at the State Department. I, you know, I did a lot of things because I really thought I was going to go deep in policy. So that this idea of changing structures and changing systems, I guess I've come full circle and come back to it. It's nice to see that. I think towards the end of my career at Deloitte, although I loved the work, I was really struggling with purpose and bigger questions and how can I make change? And so in some ways, I think that was there initially. I think when you're in corporate you're, and you're in a structure, you're just so busy performing and doing well and doing client work that there was a moment for me where there's a little bit of a disconnect around bigger purpose for, for sure for a couple of years. And I was wallowing in what had happened to the, the dreams I had as my, you know, my young 20 year old self. Um, and I found, I feel like I found it again. I, I it's, it's been amazing. So talk to me a little bit about what that personal journey was like and how um, you moved out of that place of, you know, being in the moment within this big, exciting corporate role and pulling yourself out back enough to see what you wanted to accomplish and also what wasn't part of your life right then. What were the flags for you? What yeah. sparked that journey inside before you took the journey outside? I think there was always a journey inside for me just from the beginning because of that feeling of not belonging, right? And my sense of not belonging started way before work. So I grew up in primarily white towns. I went to white schools. I went to very elite institutions where I was often the only, you know, I entered Deloitte, which was diverse, but my clients weren't so diverse. So often in the room, I was the only woman and the only woman of color. And as I rose in the firm, I definitely was that as well within leadership circles. And so there was an, always a sense of I represented something else. I was something else. It wasn't just what I said and what I did. There was something larger. I think I now have words for that, but I didn't then. I also didn't see leaders that looked like me, whether it was in my own company or, or, or companies that I, and I worked at many, many companies. Part of being a consultant is that every few months I was at a new client. And none of them looked like me. And that was a real struggle when I was early in my career. Um, I, I had the saying, I talk about it in the book, but the saying, of if you, I didn't see it, so I would be it. And that was a very conscious sort of proactive reprogramming because I didn't see it. I didn't see role models or examples that looked like me. So I had to pick and choose from multiple leaders to kind of find a voice and a way of leading that felt authentic to me. And it was a lot of trial and error. Um, so I think that the idea that there was a bigger job that I was doing than just the job was always there without my full understanding of it. And if I was going to do it, let me be the first was there, not in a active sort of way, but if I can do it, there's more work. There's like, there is policy even in the role that I was doing, but I think in moments of, of that pressure and, and the, the nature of the work, just because it's intense, you lose that larger focus. And so there was sometimes that tension between what is my job and, and why am I spending all this extra energy worrying about things that I don't think my colleagues are worrying about. So does, did that worry take a toll on you? It absolutely does. It, it takes a toll in everything. And um, there's a wonderful story that I love in the book that I think represents it even better than my own story, just because she said it so well. I interviewed this uh, Black woman who was the only Black woman in her company, and she's in the Midwest in a consumer products company. And she said to me, you know, we went through an entire interview, and then towards the end, she had uh, tears and she was almost crying. And she said to me, one of the things I really struggle with is I represent all black people everywhere when I walk the spaces of my company, because I believe I'm probably the only black person my, my fellow colleagues have ever met. And we had this big conversation about what does that feel like? And what does that mean? And how do we edit ourselves as a result of that? She edits, edits what she wears, how she wears her hair, what she talks about, what she eats. And I think that's what I was describing without the full words. Like I felt a responsibility for my success and my failure felt bigger than me. It felt like all eyes were on me. And if whether I do well or not really will determine 
in some sort of weird way, like what happens behind me for the other brown, black and brown women that are behind me. And so I don't know where that came from, but that's just part of, I think, the indoctrination that happens for a lot of women of color. And so that great sense of responsibility and all eyes are on me was very clear and, and very present at all times. Well, it's at, on one hand, an extraordinary gift that you give all those women that you're trying so hard to represent. It's also a phenomenal burden to carry yeah. all the time. I want to go back to another point in your history um, that I'm uh, curious about. You know, in corporate life, uh, one of the things we've talked we talk all the time about on this show is the underrepresentation of women in the workspace. You made a decision, what I consider a potent decision early on to go to an all women's school. Yes. Yet I'm presuming that Wellesley was as um, even there was even less representation of women of color when you were there. So did you in an all women's environment also feel those burdens? I did, again, in different ways. I found, you know, uh, my decision to go to Wells, it came down to financials, to be honest with you. It, it was a wonderful school and I'm so glad I went. But at the time, my parents had just uh, had financial failure and were really trying to figure out what to do. And had I not gotten a, a full ride or significant financial support, I wasn't going to be able to go to college. And that was a real, a real decision point. I think there, there was more Asian representation at Wellesley at the time than, you know, there might've been in 10 years before that. So I didn't necessarily feel that different, but I did think that my views on leadership maybe were slightly different or that I still had this odd duck feeling, I think probably more because of the financial situation I was in, to be honest with you. I didn't feel like I fit in an elite college where it felt like kids had cars and kids had, you know, the other women had other resources. I was, I was pinching every penny. So it was a very strange feeling in that sense of belonging, probably more class related or money related at the time. It's interesting because there are these multiple dimensions of our identity. Yes. And whenever we feel like we're part of when we're unseen or misunderstood, um, it changes the the nature of the way we experience life in that space. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's a little bit on us. I mean, part of the theme of the book, and I don't want it to sound like, and my work is not that the structure is the full problem. Some of that is work that we have to do as well. And there's parallel work. We need to change the structure and the challenges with the structure, but as women and women of color, there's messaging and program that we do some of that feeling of belonging is, is something that I need to work on. Like I, I shouldn't enter every space and feel like I don't belong. And that's work I can do. And I can take responsibility for some portions of it, but it also does come from where I went to school and the messages my parents gave me. And that I, I never saw myself on television or, you know, in a book or, you know, ever read a business book by a woman of color mm -hmm. until I was much older. So I think it comes from all directions, but it's also some work we can do on ourselves as women of color. I've often thought that the people who are really the most successful in life at some point um, they're either imbued with or they find a way to conjure a certain kind of self-confidence, a belief yeah. in themselves. And um, you, you have this tremendous grace and presence, and you've clearly found your personal power. As you're, as you're sharing these little pieces of your history, what was your journey to having that kind of self-confidence? Where did it exist for you? And where did you have to learn to look, where did you have to learn to develop it? And how'd you do that? 
It's interesting that you say that, because I'll be honest with you that the self-confidence is not, does not come naturally. And I'll get off this, you know, session that we're doing and, you know, unpack every word that I wish I'd said differently. That's part of my own process. Why so I, I carry a, a huge amount of uh, worrying and over-worrying. And um, I would say in some ways, imposter syndrome and lack of confidence. So that is there. But I've also learned to understand what parts of that, again, are mine and what parts aren't, right? Some of that is just because I always never felt like I belonged. And so it, it would be normal for me to feel that way. So I just want to say that for your listeners, because I, I don't, I think a lot of us that sits in, sit in seats of power may look powerful on the outside or struggling with a lot of challenges that we don't talk about. We need to talk about more often. Mine come from some pretty big um, life events. And it's true for a lot of the women of color I interviewed. I think some, some life events happen where something kind of falls a different way than you expected. And usually it's like a systemic thing or you know, you, some injustice has happened to you and it makes you question who you are. It makes you rewrite your narrative and it makes you step into realizing you have to stand up for yourself because the system is not going to stand up for you. For me, there were probably two or three. Uh, early on, it was that my parents went through bankruptcy and we lost everything when I was around you know, 14 to 16 and it entirely rewrote my life. And I stepped into a very adult role. My father got very sick. And so I got a job while I was in high school and all these strange things while I was in private school. So like, again, that whole class issue was very prevalent. Um, I ended up in my in my 20s, you know, living with an alcoholic in a really bad relationship and had to reinvent myself in my early 30s because that was a disaster of a situation. Um, and it's funny because I ended up taking a brief leave of absence to kind of find myself because I fell apart as that situation happened. And in finding myself, I ended up making partner faster because I stepped into my own power. And then all of a sudden I was in the partner process. Like it just it kind of all comes together. And I think that's why I'm sharing it's so important. And then the third one was for me when I got really sick and I, cho I chose to leave Deloitte. So part of the challenge was I just got married. So the biggest project of my career um, moved across the country because of the marriage and started in a new situation high profile project, again, all eyes on me doing 20 hour days, two weeks after getting married. And I found myself getting sick. And over the course of eight months, it was more and more and more growing you know, uh, symptoms. Um, fast forward 15 doctors later, I ended up getting a late stage Lyme diagnosis that came from the stress of that time that made me pause and really question, what do I want from my life and how can I work? And it's led me to a path where I think we are defining success in the wrong ways in corporate structures, right? Success is about rising. And what about well-being? What about mental health? What about physical health? I have redefined things like leadership, but also redefined my definition of success. I now believe I cannot have success if I'm not physically healthy. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest with you, five years ago, if you had asked me that, I kind of, like, I would really pride myself on, I didn't have to eat or sleep to perform. Like I had created a world where, I don't know, I was maybe a little bit of a robot and I actually was rewarded for that. That's really a wrong way of thinking. And I've had to really do the work to think about that. So it's really two or three big events in my life that have really rewritten how I see myself. And I, it's a process of stepping into your voice. That's so much of what I think this work is for women of color is that we're not in our full voice for a lot of us. We're not, you know, we're not, um, seen as powerful. We're not given space. We're not given permission to be ourselves. And part of this work and part of what I have learned is we have to stop worrying about all of that and just step into what works for us and worry about the rest. Deepa, I, I so appreciate the candor and the honesty in there. Um, I also empathize with it. I also used to say I'll sleep when, I when I'm dead, yes. not realizing I'll be dead a lot faster if I don't get some sleep. 
So Deepa, part of what you mentioned before was that you've done research. These insights that you've gathered over time are not just from your own lived experience. You did a deep dive into what seemed like a really rigorous qualitative and quantitative research process that informed the book and much of the work that you're doing. Can you give us a little sense of um, what did the process include? Who'd you talk to? How'd you learn to do this? Absolutely. Again, and I, part of what I want to make sure women understand is that there are women and there are leaders who are very thoughtful and plan everything out. I am not one of those people, <laughs> you know, so, and, and it's great. And I've had success. And so I just want to say that. So my process was I got really sick. I took eight months off um, to just literally heal. And a little bit before that process, and then a little bit after that process, I started gathering women of color, to be honest with you. I started gathering them, you know, one on one prior to COVID um, to really understand, you know, how, where are, where are safe spaces for women of color? What do I want to do next? Like what, how do I lean into having more impact in the world? Those dinners over time turned into two and three person dinners. And eventually my now business partner and I did about a dozen dinners across the country with 20 and 30 women each. Um, we would get into these spaces. They were all senior women, mostly corporate. Cause I was looking for where to, where should I go after two decades in the same place? I didn't know where one actually, how one started a career over. And we would get in these rooms for one or two hours. I thought, and six and seven hours later, we were still in the spaces talking, you know, tears, chocolate, hugging, because we saw each other in our, in, in each other, right? We saw ourselves in each other. There was such a, um, a kindred sharing of stories, of challenges, of what it was like to navigate as a first few and only. I didn't know that at the time, but that's what we were really talking about. So those conversations became the fodder for the book. Um, over the last few years, I've interv interviewed over 500 women of color and to share their stories in the book and also became the basis of the company that we founded, Information, which is bringing together those, those women of color and community. And we've done some formal research as part of the company where we interviewed over 1,700 women to kind of figure out what's different for white women and women of color in the workplace. So it, my work is very research and interview based. So with those interviews and with that research, I'm curious, what really underscored your own experience for you? And what was the biggest surprise you took away from it? I did not think when I started that path of talking to people that it would free me. I was looking for answers around stay or go. And I talked about that in the book, like just, should I stay or should I go? Because it was a big decision to leave. And it took me almost three years. What I ended up finding was witness, right? Being witnessed in my own path and my own questions. What I found was that it was not me. Again, that comes back to the insecurity. So my way of dealing with the world is I think everything is me. So something <laughs> won't bounce right. And I worry about what did I do? Like, what could I have done better? And what that process freed me and is realizing it wasn't me. I had never had conversations about the structure up till that point. I'd always been taught. And I think a lot of Indian and Asian women, and it's, it's shown in my research are not, we don't talk, we're not taught to talk about racism. Racism wasn't talked about in my family. And so all some of the black women I met and interviewed have talked about race and were told early on, the system is not going to show up for you in the same way. Many of us, you know, Latino women, um, Asian women were not taught that. And so so there is this missing conversation that happens. And so seeing all of these women allowed me to realize it wasn't me. And there's a sense of freedom and power in that, that I can't fully you know, articulate, but I think that was really what moved me the most because I realized that my work can be helping others find that when you know you're not, it's not you and you're not alone, anything is possible. So it sounds like in that part of it is also realizing it's not your fault 
Correct. to begin with, which also implies that you can't change it on your own. Yet Absolutely. at the same time, you're learning this, you're discovering this in yourself and from a group of women who are having the daily experience of navigating the world as if those two things, as if there is no choice but to fix it themselves. Correct. So how do you, there's some noise in between those two ideas. Yeah. How did you rectify them personally? You know, I think for me, it was starting to let go of everyone else's voice and everyone else's opinion and everyone else's thoughts on what I needed to do. For me, it came down to really being thoughtful about if I'm not going to do this job, that is my entire identity and my entire being and being a partner is almost like being a tenured professor. Like you've, you've worked so hard to get there and there is almost like a, a presence and a celebrity about it mm -hmm. itself. It's um, shiny. Yeah, it's shiny. If I'm and a lot of money, by the way, which I was why I walked away from. But if I was going to do all of that, like who else did I want to be, and what space did I want work to take up of my life? It was a lot of just visioning and thinking in a way that we might do when we're children, but we don't always do when we're adults and you know grown women. Like I am different than I was when I was 15, and what are my goals and my aspirations, and what do I want my life to look like? Became real questions for me, and I gave myself permission to actually follow through on them. That's the difference. I think many of us end up in a process of rising in a company or, or, you know, somewhere, and we don't allow ourselves to stop. We just get pushed by the momentum and the, the do more perform mentality. And I just, by taking a break and, and also honestly, by getting sick, so sick that I had to really question what else am I going to do? It just made me relook at my values and what was important to me. It's so inspiring to hear how your ambition took, carried you, took form, and also where it countered the messaging about ambition that can come from the world that we live in, and particularly yes. these corporate structures yes. that um, are designed to reward us, to tempt us with money, reward us with money, and create cultures where we'll endure almost anything to a certain point if we're not keeping our eye on both our own well-being and those bigger questions. Completely. So within that culture, for you, that trade-off of where capitalism was king and money was driving everything. And there's a lot in the book that I want to get into. But for you, where did you start to see the disconnect, the the fact that that's not one of the core truths around which we should be shaping workplaces. You know, it insists for me personally, some of it ties back to that bankruptcy conversation, right? So uh, for me, uh, there was a, there was some pro reprogramming I had to do around the fact that stability and financial money or, or income were tied, right? That stability, yes, there, there is some association, but it's not, it's not all that's important. And so that became really what I unpacked. I think I also, by meeting all these senior women, there were many of them who had believed once they got to the seat, they would be able to do it their way. So there was the mm -hmm. sense of I'll edit myself, I'll conform, I'll rise. And then at some point, something else will happen. What I started to see, and I you know, saw maybe a little bit myself, but I saw much more so in all the other women and the volume of women was that once they got to the seat, there was even less ability to do it their way. And I think that's what became clear to me is, um, again, what is success? What is leadership? You know, is money enough to mute my voice? You know, that became a real question for me, for, for me to conform, for me to sacrifice my health. Um, and I just saw so many women that were doing that. And I think it's really not healthy or happy. We're seeing it with COVID, with all the moms leaving, all the women leaving, all the women of color leaving in so many different 
different forms. I don't think the work structure is working for ever, anybody, to be honest with you, even white men, but there's not been space to talk about that. I mean, so much of what the undertow of to, to my work is around permission. It's just permission to question, permission to rethink, because these things we've been taught were, were envisioned, you know, decades, if not centuries ago, and they really haven't been redone to, to work for the norms that we have today. Yeah. And this whole system that we're in, the whole way that work is structured, the way labor is valued or not, the way that power is assigned or taken, um, was designed in a very different context that really didn't have women in mind, never mind people of color and women of color. Along the way, um, how far were you in the arc of your career when you started to have this crystallization of what the challenges were, but at the same time, how did that match up with when you started to feel like it was safe to have a voice? I had always had a voice. This is the part of that part. You know, this is part of my own story. That's really confusing because I think I started with that, not that sense of not belonging and that not MBA and not feeling like I was on the same track as everyone else. I always told my truth. So I always talked about being younger and again, because I wasn't that MBA, I was a few years younger than everyone else at every level. Um, I also was single after that, that bad relationship for a very large part of my career. And so my model was different. Like I literally didn't have a spouse or a significant other at home to make my life work. And my life was travel, right? I lived out of a suitcase, sometimes two and three cities um, a week. And so for me, it became when my life started to ask different questions that I asked, you know, larger growing questions. I think, um, you know, I remember a conversation with my CEO where, you know, I just said early on, and I, this was shocking now to think about it, but I was a new partner. And I said to him, you know, in a casual conversation, you know, I understand that I'll make a lot of money, but I think I want more time because I'm, I'm, you know, single, I want to trade time for money. And it ended up opening up this really rare conversation with him one-on-one about what does that really look like? And what does that mean? Is that a younger sort of, you know, I'm not a millennial, but a younger millennial sort of thinking before that became an open topic. And so I've always had my voice, but I think I felt more comfortable stepping into my power and questioning more things as I got clearer that, you know, I was sick, I was unhappy. There was something else happening for me around purpose. So you've had these compelling internal motivations um, mixed with what sounds like your own inherent courage. So in the first half hour, you were sharing a lot with us about a really amazing way that you've been able to hold, develop and hold on to your own personal power through your life, all the way from your teenage years um, through an extraordinary career path that now has you as a real role model and entrepreneur and leader in an underserved space. As a white woman hosting the show, trying my best to learn how I can be what you call a co-conspirator, to help all women thrive and to make sure I'm closing the gap that I used to unintentionally leave um, between my world and the world of women in color. Talk to me about that relationship between personal power and collective power and how we go about working together. I know it's a giant question. Yes, it's a giant question. Yes, yes. So so in its simplest form, I talk about something called the power of me and the power of we. So there's work that we have to do as individuals. You know, as a woman of color, that's me erasing all the messages that don't work for me and kind of coming to my own. For you as a white woman, it may be, you know, reading, it may be getting smarter, it may be, you know, just more education on the topic itself. It might look different, but that could be one one avenue. 
I think then it's the power of me is this idea that we can't change structures. Like there's only so much self-work we can do before we start to, you know, talk ourselves into the same things we used to believe before. And so part of the work we have to do, whether that's co-conspirator groups, women of color groups, or together is having these kinds of conversations. These are not conversations that are easy or that come naturally. And part of the magic of what we do in information is really just asking the questions and holding space. It's not that we're teaching anything really, you know, different or um, it's not rocket science, I like to say, but I think what's different is we're just having conversations that people don't have. And that's what has to happen in that power of we space, because we can't change things. We can't come up with new ideas if we're not talking about what's not working for all of us. So one of the things I loved in the book is that you did two things in the book that all too often get relegated to different books and different conversations Mm -hmm. was you helped us as readers understand these big concepts, these big issues that women of color are facing every day in the workplace. And you also helped us get practical and tactical because as you're noting, um, so many women are going through their lives not realizing that the experience they're having, A, is not their fault and is systemic or structural. So I want to get anchored in what some of those challenges are and an amazingly forthright, practical kind of advice that you were offering in the book. So, and I think it was rooted in the way you framed delusions. So talk to me about what some of these are, and and I'd like to probe a little bit what we can do to address them day to day. And I'm going to say we here, because while I want to remain mindful of the deep differences in my experiences, there's also a way that as a woman in general, I could relate to a lot of this. Absolutely. And that was the intent, although the book is written for women of color, because I don't feel we have many resources that are written for us in our own voice. You could, you could scratch out women of color in a lot of places and it applies to women. It applies to everybody, to be honest with you. Um, so I think that's fair. The, the first chapter of the book lays out a number of delusions and, and delusions, I believe, are things we've been taught by the system, by those around us at school that are how the system behaves, that we have not been taught to question, but we've been just told to accept is the way it is, the status quo or the behavior, or these are the practices. And what I'm asking us to do as women of color, but also as co-conspirators is realize we can rewrite anything that has come before. And so there's 10 delusions I lay out. I'll just pick one or two to talk about. Um, One that I love the most is this idea that the pie is limited. So I often talk with women and women of color about, you know, how, how, like at at your company, how many seats are available to women, women or women of color? And I'm fully expecting them to say, what are you talking about? Why are there only certain seats available to me? But every single time women will tell me there's one seat or there's two seats. One is going to go to a woman of color and one is going to go to a white woman, or, you know, this is the kind of background I need. It's this idea that we are fighting. We are competing. There are limited seats for us, that the pie is built a certain way. And I just don't know where that came from. Like who defined that? Why are there 12 seats and only two for women and one for a woman of color? And that's part of the practice that we need to redefine because I think consciously and unconsciously, we believe that. And as a result, we compete against each other. Um, I think that also applies to men. So part of what I found, and there's a lot of research on this that's growing, but that white men sometimes feel like as women of color or as women get opportunities, there are opportunities being taken from them. And that's one of the biggest delusions for me that has to be redone because we can't really properly do DE&I work if there is a feeling of taking from some group um, is the only way to fulfill the other group's needs. It ends up pinning us against each other of these winners and losers concepts. And that's just not necessary or helpful 
helpful given where we've come from for the last few years. And so that's a second one. The third is just this idea that, you know, winner take all or competition. Like, I don't know where that comes from. Why do we have to behave in a certain way to rise and to operate in corporate structures? Who said we can't be people and we can't bring humanity to work and other, other characteristics aren't important. We've all been taught that. We've all been taught there's this way to behave in these structures to get ahead, but why? And, and, and isn't it time to change that? So those are just three examples, but there's many. And what's so fascinating is we don't, we don't um, give our, again, permission to give us permission to question those things. Like why we, have we just taken them as the status quo? It's um, those, the ones you just mentioned, that and the, the fallacy of the meritocracy are yes. two things that really resonate. But I'm just going to run through the list briefly yes. for the listeners, because yes. I want you to go get the book and check this out, because these are important things. And these are fallacies that get perpetrated every day in the workplace. Um, speaking to women of color, we can't find you in terms of getting people into the talent pipeline. Just be yourself as if really that works every day. Um, just wait, your turn will come. I don't see color. Please share your thoughts. And that's too political. And DE&I will fix everything. So it's like, as I say these things, um, these are the messages that were given over and over. But I think when you nailed what we've been talking about here as zero sum thinking, um, yeah. and I love the way that you describe that there's only one size pie and the pie can never be made bigger. Um, and it's so deeply rooted. And this is could be, you know, a lifetime of education, not to mention a few other shows on so deeply rooted in the role of slavery and capitalism mm -hmm, correct. that who has the power and who are they afraid will either take or get the power seems to have shaped our entire workforce. Correct. And part of the big work that we all have to do right now is to open up to the notion that if there are more, if there's more diversity in our ranks, if more people are represented, that's actually part and parcel of how we grow the pie. How did you get, because part of what you did so successfully at Deloitte was you were an advocate, you moved the ball forward. How did you communicate with the people that needed to learn this lesson to get them to open up and understand it? I think I've just always questioned everything around me and I do it in a very transparent and vulnerable way. I do it through, you know, storytelling and sharing, you know, how, how I appear here is how I led as a senior partner. And I think for some people that's shocking. Um, but for me, it comes from that place of, if I want to lead differently, I have to do it differently and I have to share my personal experiences. And I'm not saying I shared every single one or as a woman of color, I, you know, did everything I wanted to do, but I did more than most because I also realized that that a little bit was on me. Like I wasn't going to change behavior and change what people thought if I didn't show up differently. And so I did take some of that responsibility. I also though, and I think this is one of the biggest themes I love that you brought it up is this idea of it's a meritocracy. I think I always question whether corporate America was a meritocracy. It felt like at times it was showing up differently for me. For me also, it was sometimes less about race and ageism. So I was mm -hmm. very young in my role. So almost on a daily basis, hourly basis, there would be comments about what I look like and, and my age, right? Oh, you're young. You can't be the partner. That was a constant for my clients, a constant thing. And so I think it came from realizing it shows up differently. And as a result, I have to 
build some tolerance around it, which took me a lot of time because I used to take everything personally. You know, whenever anyone questioned my age and my capability, I would roll out the list of, you know, where I went to school and all the things. Um, and over time, I just realized that's about them. And I started to release more and more of that and not make that my work or my responsibility um, and just share my truth in ways that felt authentic to me and when I, when I wanted to and how I wanted to. And so that's what I really encourage other women to do. So it's ironic. I'm now on the other side of 50 and I'm having the inverse problem yes. of people presuming I can't still learn or grow or innovate yes, because I hit yes. a certain number. So I say yes. nana, nana, boo-boo to them. But anyway, um, going back to this notion of the zero-sum thinking and meritocracy, one of the things that you talked about in the book regularly and in a pointed way that felt deeply important to me was acknowledging where women over and over again had to withstand various forms of harassment in the workplace in order to not lose a client or not lose pay. That it's an entire culture where capitalism is king and it does not, like you were saying, 20 hours a week, fly to two cities a week. That's hard enough, but never mind if you're getting um, the thousand cuts of insult and harassment and belittlement on a daily basis. For women who are going through that experience, how do you, one, protect yourself in the moment, and B, when you are strong enough and not traumatized by those things, start to move to flag it so that it doesn't happen to other people in your environment? Yeah, I want to start by saying it's hard, right? A lot of what I'm talking about in the book is hard. And I get a lot of women of color saying to me, well, I can't possibly do that in my workplace or I need a paycheck. And so, you know, if you are living pay to pay, paycheck to paycheck, or it's not possible for you right now, I completely understand that. And, you know, you need to do what you need to do. And I can't, do, I can't possibly tell you what to do. But I think for those of us that have a little bit of flex and feel like we can speak up or we are strong enough, healthy enough to speak up, I think more of us have to. That's the only way we're going to change things. And I also think when we believe we have to stay in situations and women of color are taught this often to stay longer in situations than other groups, to be grateful, thankful. There's a lot of, lot of talk about this in the book. We end up in situations where we end up sacrificing ourselves. And I think we have to get to a place where we realize we are powerful, that we can take our work elsewhere. We are in demand now more than ever. So if we don't push back on culture change, if we don't push back on microaggressions or racism, if we don't you know, take our possibilities elsewhere, even if it's when we need a paycheck, we're never going to be able to change what's happening to us, you know? And there were a couple of examples of this in the book. There's one where there was a financial planner who is a black woman um, and her clients thought she was white. And one day one of them showed up in the office and, you know, when she reached out to shake his hand, he said to her, I'm not waiting for you. I'm waiting for the, you know, I'm waiting for, <laughs> for someone else. And she said, no, I'm your, I'm your financial planner. And he was shocked because he had assumed she was a white woman. And they ended up having a really poor exchange. And a couple of days later, she she fired him. And again, she said to me, like, I can do that because it's my book of business. It cost me, right? It comes at a cost, but I have gotten to a place where I'm no longer going to suffer, um, you know, suffer with people that don't see me and respect me. Again, I'm not saying that's easy, but I think you're going to be happier and more powerful if you stand your ground and set your boundaries. So for me, what I practice and what I tell other women is you can't set, you can't possibly take on every fight. You can't set every boundary, but have a few, know what's not going to work for you, you know, absolutely. And Stick to those and know when you have to walk and when you have to leave. Yeah, those are critical things. So Deepa, as we're talking about when we are 
actually because of the position we're in, the circumstances we live in, we can't rock the boat versus when we're taught not to rock the boat or we have to find the courage. How does that map onto what you describe as three stages of career? Learn, earn, and return. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, in a simplest way, I want women to realize and all women to realize that you have choices, that every decision you make, um, whether it, and some of the less tenured women were worried about things like how I dress and can I wear red lipstick on zoom? Are people going to take me seriously? Those are choices. They may in the moment feel not so big, but for the women I talked to, those were big decisions. Um, and so it is really understanding that those are choice points at the same time. If something is racism happens around you and you just choose to file a complaint, that is also a decision you can make. And I, it's really understanding that we have more agency. Uh, what I talk about is there are different issues and different things we're learning at different stages of our career early in our career. We're maybe more learning the norms of a company. Like what, how do you get promoted? What's accepted? What is email etiquette, right? Just simply could go from everything simple to more complex. What is zoom etiquette these days, right? In the middle of your career, most women are challenged with raising children, also taking care of elderly parents. They're getting pushed from both sides of the, the caretaking mm -hmm. um, conundrum. And so there are bigger questions that are happening, life questions. At the same time, that is where most women rise the fastest, where they mm -hmm. spend the majority of their career, they're earning the most. And so understanding how you set boundaries and take care of yourself is really important in that phase. And towards the later part of your career, when you're more legacy thinking, it's really about how do you want to spend your time and what do you want to give back? And in those moments, what I'm finding for a lot of women of color is they're being asked to be on boards and do other things, but how do we negotiate and fully ask for what we want and our worth? Because we tend to negotiate differently. We tend to ask for things differently. And we need to be bolder in what we're asking for. So that's really what I lay out in that chapter that you're talking about. Yeah, I, I found it really instructive and also that um, very practical advice, particularly in that early learn stage. Yeah. So as uh, a woman of color underrepresented in a competitive organization, where, as you're trying to learn about those norms, who can you turn to, especially when there's so few people in leadership roles who look like you do? Yeah, I'm asking us to turn to our peers, turn to our sisters and, you know, do this really differently. Part of my work now, and I didn't have this, so I want to be super clear. I didn't have a ton of women friends. I didn't have women of color. I was busy. Like I just didn't have time for that. <laughs> right. And the minimal time I had, I was trying to date, right. Or, or just kind of, you know, take care of like dry cleaning, like basic things um, in my mind, basic things. Um, and so part of what, what I'm finding less tenured, you know, younger women doing and what we need to do more of at all levels is to find communities, to find others, is to find spaces where you can have these conversations. The more you can have even a chat group where you can say this, this racist incident just happened or this microaggression just happened. What would you have done? What would you have said? I need to tell you what happened. That is freeing in itself. There's so much pain and shame that happens on issues like this that we bottle up that we think is us, that just finding others to have the conversation with is really game-changing. A lot of less tenured women are sharing their pay information in a really different way. That is game-changing. So I think anything is possible when we come together and stop. Again, who told us we can't share that information? Like, where does that come from? That's a delusion. So let's right. do it differently. So yeah, I think community is super important for how you learn norms. So of course, this is about a stage of career that we go through, but you also refer to you're seeing different patterns in millennial women from, say, my generation of um, an awareness of this and a willingness to do this. Can you tell me more about what you're seeing in yeah. younger women that we had to learn in different ways? 
Yeah, I think um, more tenured women or, or you know, legacy women, uh, women, of, women of a certain age. And I, by the way, I'm, I'm very close to that group <laughs> more, more than the other group. Um, it, it, I think it's partly that we've been taught we had to put up with it. So there is more of a feeling that we had to put up with the things around us to get ahead. We had to conform in really straightforward ways, right? How we dressed, how we acted, what we talked about. Um, even, you know, there's many stories about moms not talking about their children at work, right? I mean, the whole oh, yeah, spectrum, who wouldn't have right? a picture like that was, in their office. Exactly. Because right. you didn't want to talk about having a personal life. So I think that's really true. And, in you know, I, so I think that's one set. I think the less tenured women, as I call them, know that the system is going to show up differently, maybe are aware that it's not going to be a system they want to stay in forever. But what's different is they're only coming into it for a year or two. Almost every young woman that I interviewed basically said, I know corporate sucks. I'm going to spend a year or two there and then I'm going to go do my own thing or go somewhere else. Or it wasn't this idea of I'm going to be there forever. And so it was much more of an extract and move on mentality, which meant that they might be willing. And now here's the difference. They might be willing to tolerate more because they weren't going to be there forever. Ah. Oh, that's okay. so it's, it's not that it's not that they're not experiencing it. They may have less tolerance for it, but they also don't feel like it's going to be something that they experience forever. Um, also, you know, so how much of that is um, that they're not playing the long game yeah. or that they have confidence in themselves for the long game to think that they don't have to hitch their wagon to a giant to one single organization? I think it's, it, you know, from the women I have talked to, I don't know that the confidence is fully changed. I think there's still a lot of confusion. I think it's not having to hit yourself. I think there's more flexibility or feeling that there's options than maybe ever before, which is so true in this moment, especially. So I, th- I just think it gives you freedom, right? Part of part of what this is this work is about is, is uh, choices and freeing yourself from the delusions, unplugging from the matrix, right? <laughs> to, to use that analogy, <laughs> gives you freedom and liberation. And that's what this is about. So I, I just feel like they have more, they feel like they have more choices and are less stuck, but I don't know that the confidence is any better because they're still growing up in the same institutions and the same systems that tell them across the board that we're not enough, whether you're women or women of color. You get a sense that they have a different faith in other women to support them, or are they experiencing the same queen bee problems that we've seen all along? So what's interesting is many of them noted for me that the queen bee was alive and well at more senior levels. So they would say things to me like, part of why I don't want to stay here forever is because those women are ferocious to each other, right? Or that's not how I want to live my life, right? I, I don't want to be that kind of leader or that kind of partner. Um, so I think that's real. I think that also what happens, and I found this in my own you know, tenure as well, is I think we want to believe that it's not going to happen to us. Unfortunately, I think once you get to the middle of your career, what I found is even the women who thought it wasn't going to happen, it happened. So there's still a little bit of naivete that it's going to be different for me, you know, maybe not as bad for me. Um, and, you know, I'm finding, unfortunately, most women hit that spot, but they also mm-hmm. at that point are more willing to go elsewhere. So there was an, um, an analogy or a metaphor that you used in the book that I thought was very interesting. Um, and it struck me and it was the difference between being a unicorn or being a zebra. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the context in which you use it and what a zebra is? 
Yeah, it's not, it's, it's from research that I found. So it's not my own research, but I loved it because I think it speaks to what we value. So what it was suggesting is um, how companies are funded. So startups are funded if they're these unicorns one-off where they make a ton of money and are, you know, shoot to the top really quickly. And we reward unicorns. We talk about unicorn businesses all the time, and that's what VCs fund. And instead it was this wonderful thought that we need zebras. We need more companies that are changing how we do business are more diverse in innately because they are more, you know, they can thrive in the long term. Maybe they don't have the rocket ship sort of success, but they are changing the paradigm of what it means to be successful. And why aren't we rewarding those companies? Why do we pick unicorns over zebras? Unicorns are just doing the same thing we've always done, maybe on an escalated scale. Let's put money in companies doing it differently. So it sounds like one of the, this may be my recurring theme for the conversation, but I also see it in the work that you've done in the way that you're talking about it, is that this isn't, we're not rejecting capitalism forthright, but that in our economic systems, depending on how we approach them, um, the drive for quick, big money, absolute power, zero-sum thinking can really be pernicious. But there are other ways that we can still raise the tide, raise the level of the water for everyone if we play a longer game and we're more inclusive in the process. Is that a fair way of refocusing it? I think that's true. I also think that part of the message is the system can have flaws. And we have not until George Floyd's murder until last year and a half, I don't think even had the space to talk about how race shows up in the workplace. And so the, the biggest delusion is that, you know, just work harder, or do more, like the system is not corrupt or the system doesn't have under, underpinnings tied to slavery or enslavement. You know, there, there are not problems in how it was created. You can't create something that's flawed and then just believe it's going to be resolve itself. Like we have to fix some of the challenges as part of the message. and. I do believe it's fixable, but I think there's a lot of work to be done. And part of the challenge is we weren't in seats making those decisions and they're designing it. And we haven't really figured out even today how to make space so that more voices can adjust what's happening. We, we, we're not doing that. We're just putting you know single DEI leaders in place or a couple of people and asking them to fix cultures. Like that's not, that's not re-envisioning re or reimagining. No, but what is happening is because of people like you, we are starting to look at new ways to find our voices and use them together. And yes. it's enormously important and so potent, Deepa. So you've the book is inspiring. The work you're doing is inspiring. And I hope it's going to launch a whole new generation of people that are going to change the workplace. So if people want to learn more about you, more about information in the book, where can they find you? You can find everything on my website. It's Deepa, D-E-E-P-A. P-U-R-U.com. And there's information about the book, about the speaking that I'm doing, and also information, the company as well. Okay. And I also want to shout out to your amazing TED Talk, which is both illuminating and inspiring and a wonderful teaser for what you can find out in a much more substantive way in the book. Um, and so if people um, want to actually get involved in information, um, is there a fee and which of those links are the best place to go for it? 
Um, again, every, I was trying to make it simple. Everything is, is on the website. So we'll take you to the information website for my website. Um, and you can sign up for the wait list. We actually interview all the women um, one-on-one that want to come into the community because this is about creating safe space. And so it's less about levels and titles and tenure and more about, are we inviting members in that can hold space for each other? Um, and so it's a yearly membership. There is a fee involved, you know, roughly around $800 for the, for the year. Um, and that brings you a, a ton of programming and a ton of access and also this community of of amazing leaders. Deepa, thank you so much for joining us and for the important work that you're doing. We really do appreciate it. And thank Thank you all for joining us today. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business and me at Laura Zarrow and find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Thanks as always to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks, to Kara Pogue for all of her support behind the scenes. I'm Laura Zarrow and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the world. Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody, and take good care of each other. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.